So as Americans, we've got a bunch of different pictures in our mind of heaven. For example, common American picture of heaven, white light. Right? That's what picture we picture heaven to be like. And that's in part because a lot of people have these near-death experiences and what they generally see is either their life flash before their eyes or they see a blazing white light. A major factor in that was a man named Todd Burpo who had, what, 15 years ago had that experience of heaven and he wrote that book, Heaven is for Real. White light, that's what we like to think of heaven as. Or, or maybe you think of it as the pearly gates. There's one little phrase in Revelation where, where the Bible mentions pearly gates, but, you know, really, we, we get it from our jokes, don't we? Three men meant St. Peter at the pearly gates. I don't know how you finish it. I think we'll leave that for at home later. Or another way we like to picture heaven, cabin at the lake. What does everybody say? It's my little slice of, right? In fact, that got legitimized a few years ago by that book, The Shack. I don't know if any of you read it. Where was God? Not on a throne or a glorious scene or a mountain. Cabin by the lake. Maybe another one that we like to think of, popular in religious circles, a large congregational worship gathering. Our synod, our denomination, just had a leadership conference a couple of weeks ago, and there was 2,000 people there. It was really neat to see and to hear all the people say, man, it was just like heaven when they had church. I don't know if it was, but they liked it. We have these pictures in our minds, don't we, of heaven and what heaven is like. I wonder how many of those are biblical. I don't think it's all wrong for us to imagine heaven in our own way. There's so many pictures in the Bible of what heaven's like. It's, it's hard to say this has to be the way you picture heaven. Still, I, I wonder how many of those are, are biblical. You know what the most common pictures in the Bible for heaven are? What's the, the most common one in the Bible? City. The most common biblical picture for eternity in heaven is city. The last picture in the Bible for heaven is a city. I saw the holy city coming down out of heaven like a bride. That's what God says heaven's like. And it's not a boring city. It's a gorgeous city. Still, it's a city. I know how a lot of you feel about cities. <laughs> or, or another common picture is a house. Jesus says, in my father's house are many rooms. But it's not a cabin, a little shack by the lake. What is it? It's a mansion. It's a mansion that has more rooms than you can possibly imagine. Or or another common picture is a land. Jesus, the the writer to the Hebrews, I should say, the writer to the, the Hebrews says, we imagine a better country. We hope for a better country a better land. That's one of the most common pictures of heaven because the the Hebrews, the Israelites, were looking for the promised land. I know you all like being Americans. You would never dream of leaving America, right? But if you want to go to another land, then you get the biblical picture of heaven. If you're ready to leave, that's now you're ready for heaven. But you know what Jesus' favorite picture was? What was Jesus' favorite picture for heaven? A banquet. 
The one thing that Jesus loved to picture heaven, remember the parable of the great banquet? And today's story is the same thing. Jesus liked heaven as a banquet, a really big wedding feast. And I think that's really interesting. I think that's really significant. You know, a lot of people, I talk with them about heaven, and there are two things that they say about heaven are, well, it's perfect, and two, nobody knows what it's like. And I say to them, actually, somebody does. Jesus does. Jesus does. And what does he tell heaven is, us heaven is like? Jesus tells us heaven's like a wedding, like a wedding banquet. And, and I bet you can guess, just like I can, why that is so awesome. I was just talking to my wife the other day and about how I like going into my dad's workshop at home. Down at my, my dad's workshop, he's got pictures of the family all over the wall. My favorite reason to go into my dad's workshop is because I get to see all these cute pictures of myself from when I was five and six and eight years old. Man, I was cute. No, I'm just kidding. No, the, the reason I like it, you know, right front and center, you can imagine what pictures there on the wall. It's him and his bride. Right? The chief picture on the wall is their wedding. Every day he looks at a picture that makes him happier than anything else in the whole world and reminds him of all the happiness that he's been given. And Jesus knew, he knew something about us long before we even thought of it. Long before we even dreamed it. And you see it today. He put this picture of a wedding banquet into our hearts and minds. We're doing Epiphany here at Peace. Epiphany is all about God reveals his glory to us in Jesus and there's no better story to take for the revealing of God's glory than this story, the wedding of Canaan. In fact, if you read the last line, it says, thus he revealed his glory. And you're like, oh, this is God's glory. If you want to know what God's glory looks like, this is it. Jesus shows us all of the best stuff of God today. Right here, the wedding of Cana. Let's check it out. Let's see what we can find out. I want to tell you about this story just a little bit. It's a little trick for me to say that this story is a wedding because it's not a wedding. There's no vows. There's no ceremony. It's just a party. That's all it is. The problem is, it's a bad party. It's a really bad party. All right, I don't want to exaggerate. It's a bad party. The, the, the whole story starts with Mary coming to Jesus and saying, they have no more wine. Have you ever been at a wedding that ran out of wine? I was at one about six, seven years ago, and let's just say the groom was kind of a cheapskate, but all of a sudden there was more wine. It was really nice. It's like, oh, it's magic. In ancient Judaism, this wedding was even more important than today. Ancient Jews had a wedding for about seven days, give or take, and weddings were regional events. Everybody from the whole area could come and celebrate, enjoy the party. You didn't have to send out invitations. It was open. And it was the groom's job to make sure there was enough wine. Wine was key for the party. We don't know if it was a common event that they ran out of wine. You know, you don't want to make 
too big of a deal out of it. Maybe, maybe it de- depended on how many people showed up for the party. Bottom line, though, no wine. Party's over. Go home. What an embarrassing situation this must have been. On top of that, the, the master of the banquet, at the end, he says, well, everybody brings out the bad wine when they've had too much to drink. We don't know if that means that they were drunk. They at least had plenty to drink. Otherwise, the wine wouldn't have been gone, right? So they're having a good time. They're going perhaps a little too far. Plus, think about this. Mary was a guest at the wedding. When's the last time the guests were responsible for making sure there was enough food at a wedding? You know, I'm, I'm a pastor, so when I get to the wedding, I, have, I either have to make sure the wedding goes really well, right? Or what else do I get to do? I get to sit down and just have a good time. Mary had to take to figure out, what do we do about the wine? What an embarrassing situation. If you're a guest at a party and you've got to figure out that, what to do about not having enough wine, you've got a problem. And, and then on top of that, Mary tells the, the servants to do whatever he says. Now think about that one. You probably don't like getting bossed around very much in life. I bet you like bossing other people around at least a little bit. But I bet you don't walk around into other people's houses saying, you do this. If you come to my house and you boss around my kids, you're not staying long. I'm going to kick you out. You certainly don't get to boss around my wife. What is Mary doing? She's telling the servants what to do? What's going on? This wedding is a disaster. It was an embarrassment. And, and I'm not making, uh, an, I'm not exaggerating, I'm not making a, a big, bigger thing out of this than, than it has to be. Every commentator who reads this story tells us, you know, as far as ancient Jewish weddings go, this was not stellar. This was an embarrassment. Mary comes to Jesus, they've run out of wine, and what does Jesus say? What does Jesus say? What does that have to do with me? Why do you involve me? This is how we really know that it was an embarrassment. Right? If, if you're at a party and somebody says to you, hey, we ran out of food, what do you do? Let me pitch in. Can I run to Myers and get something for us? What do we need? Right? What was Jesus doing? Jesus says, well, what does that have to do with me? Why do you involve me? You know, I don't know exactly what he was doing. I suspect, what was he doing? He was daydreaming, right? He was out like this. I mean, what else is there to do? Obviously, he's busy thinking about himself and about his things and about his life. We know that because later on he tells Mary, my hour has not yet come. What's on his mind? His time, his coming suffering, his death, his life. He's not thinking about the wedding. (laughs) He's thinking about his life. (laughs) And if it's gotten that bad, obviously the party isn't very much fun. And still, he made wine. He made really good wine. 
got to notice this, right? He waited for everything to, to fall apart. He didn't even plan to do anything about it. He just let the whole thing fall apart. He even let his, his mother kind of say, hey, you got to do something about this. And then he finally did something about it. How many of us wouldn't like God to fix our lives before they get bad? Can we wait for God when they actually do get bad? What's the point of this passage, though? The point of this passage is easy, right? The point of this passage is Jesus Christ comes and he says, I'm the true groom. Your groom failed. He bombed it. And the wedding is a failure. I'm the real groom. He's saying, I have come, yes, to teach you the way of life. I've come to teach you the Ten Commandments. I've come to teach you rules and regulations. I've taught you how to live well. I have come to make sure your conduct is good and right with God. But even more than that, I have come to give you a really good party. Ultimately, right, what am I here to do? Look at Isaiah 25 sometime. It says, In the last day, the Lord of hosts will make for his people a feast of the finest meats and the well-refined wine. Jesus says, I'm the Lord of the feast. I'm the Lord of the party. What's the point? Jesus is the true groom. He's the one who says, I have come to bring you the experience of festival joy of a real party that you have never had. I have come to make sure that your wine never runs out, that your food never runs out. I have come to fill your life with that happiness and that joy that you can't get anywhere else. You know, I think I kind of get what he is saying here just a little bit, and and not because I, I pretend to be Jesus. Okay, so I'm not saying that. But I'm not a people pleaser, and some of you know that. You've told me, you know, pastor, sometimes you say things that don't make me very happy. I say, I'm sorry. Right, but what I am in life, I may not be a people pleaser, but I am a party thrower. I love a good party. And maybe you can tell, I I texted some of you earlier this uh, yesterday morning and I said randomly, hey, we're bringing food to the voters meeting tomorrow. Let's have a party. Now, a bunch of you probably said, a meeting? And we're having, right? Why do we have to turn this into a party? Because I love to have a party. I love to have a really good party. And I feel this obligation, this desire to make sure that there is enough wine for us to have fun. There is enough food so that we're never hungry. That there's enough drink so that we're never thirsty. So that there is forgiveness for the failures and hope for the hopeless. And a future for those stuck in the past. I feel like we have to have grace for sinners. And not just a little bit, but a lot of bit. And I think to myself, if I care about that that much, how much more does the Lord of heaven and earth care that you have a really good time? I don't feel like it's my job to, to please you in life. That's on you. But I do feel like it's my job to make sure that it's a really good party And if you don't want to come, and if you don't want to be happy, and if you don't want to participate, and if you don't want to enjoy it, then that's on you. That's your choice. You lost out. 
But if you want to come, if you want to participate, if you want to be happy, if you want to have a good time, then enjoy the party. Enjoy the very best things that God has to give. Enjoy the riches of his grace. What is Jesus saying to us here? Let's cut out the metaphor for just a second. There's plenty of people who probably have said something to you in your life, or it's stuck in your mind that Christianity is about living a good, obedient life. That to please God, you need to do the right thing. And maybe you've gotten that impression because you studied the Ten Commandments in catechism class, and because then you went through the Lord's Prayer, and you were told this is how to pray, and you've been told, I show up at church, uh, at church on every Sunday, and I give my offering, and I don't argue too much with pastor, and I certainly do what the council or the voters say. This is what I have to do. And look what God says. He says, I want to give you a really good party. And if you are so stuck in the sin, in the hurt, let's say it like he says it, right? The embarrassment of your own life, that you don't want to come to the party, then that's on you. And Jesus is not trying to pick on you or yell at you or anything else, but he's saying, I have grace for the sinners. I have hope for the hopeless. I have life for those struggling in death. I have a future for those stuck in the past. I have food for the hungry. I have a home for the homeless. I have drink for the thirsty. I would give it all to you. Will you taste and see that I am good? Will you come to the party? Do you taste the joy? See, I, I, I can get not wanting to come to the party. And I can see that because when I was in college, I did not go to any of the big parties. Here I am saying I'm the guy that I love to have a good party, right? But I, I did not go to the big parties. And it was a simple reason. I can look back and I know exactly why. I didn't want to be a bad person. I didn't want to get stuck doing bad things, right? To be frank, all of the parties in college, the big parties, all you heard about were the horror stories. Now, those were probably one person out of 5,000 who did something stupid, but I didn't want to do anything wrong. And so what did I do? I skipped the parties. Some of you are probably so embarrassed by all of the things that you've experienced in your life because your life has run out like the wine ran out, because you're bossing the people around who, who shouldn't be told what to do, because you just don't know how to obey, that you don't want to go to the party. The party is for you. The party is for you, and it's awesome. And you just have to come and go to the party. And I'm sure, like I said, you've had a lot of people tell you that Christianity is about following the rules, doing the right thing, making sure you don't mess up your life. And if you get really deep into it, right, there's this message about denying yourself, emptying yourself, so that you humble yourself. All of that is true. All of that is absolutely true. But it misses the fact that Jesus would stop at nothing to make sure that the cup was full for your party. What do I mean by that? The end of this section, Jesus says, you can go to the next side. He says, my hour has not come. My hour has not come. Jesus was not looking at his watch and saying, I wait, want this wedding to be over. He was probably not even staring at a sundial and saying, I hope this wedding is done soon. If you're at a wedding, 
what do you think about? If you're at a wedding, and especially if it gets boring, what do you end up thinking about? You end up thinking about your own wedding, right? And if, if you've been there for, if you haven't gotten married yet, you think about your wedding that might happen someday. What was Jesus thinking about? He was thinking about his own wedding. His own wedding to you, the people of God. In fact, in Revelation, right, it says, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared what? As a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. What Jesus is thinking about is his wedding day. He is thinking about the consummation beyond all consummations. He is thinking about the wedding feast that is better than every feast. He is thinking about the party that will never end. He is thinking about the greatest event in all of history. And he cannot wait for that day. You see, he's sitting at that wedding and all he can think about is you. Even more than that, all he can think about is is what it will take him to get you. Because he says, my hour has not yet come. It's going to take an hour for him to fill a cup of wine. In fact, you want to see how deep this goes? In John, the hour, the hour, Jesus, that's a technical term. Okay, you can look this up. If you look in the hour, it says, go to John 7.30, go to John 8.20, go to John 12.23, go to John 13.1. The hour is always the hour of his death. It is. When he says the hour has not come, he means the time he is going to die. Now listen, right? Mary says to him, they need wine for the wedding. He says, my time to die hasn't come. Sounds like it doesn't make sense, right? But what's he saying? He's saying, my time to fill the wine for your party isn't here yet. That comes later. And and he shows that in even a deeper way. He wants the jars that are used for ceremonial washing. Right? The jars that are used for ceremonial washing. Why? What are the jars used for? They're used to wash away all the people's impurities so that they could come to the party. So if you've been around a sick person, you have to wash your hands in that water, not just any water, but that water, so that you can come to the party. If you've been around a dead person, you have to wash your hands so that you can come to the party. If you have cursed or you have sworn or you have slept with somebody that you have not married to or you have lied, All of those things, you have to wash your hands in that water, those jars, so you can come to the party. And then he turns that water into wine. Do you see what he's saying? He's saying, my wine will really wash you clean. My wine is the better wine that will not just satisfy you, but it will really make you clean. He has nothing better on his heart and his mind than to get you ready for the very best party. So friends, come to the party. Enjoy it. Don't be like me who stayed home from all those parties in college just because I was worried that I wouldn't be a good enough person if I did. Come to the party. Enjoy it. Let's celebrate. Because we have the very best groom who has poured out the best wine for this party.
Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you so much for making sure that the world that we get to live in, that Christianity as we follow you, is not a religion of law and obedience and making sure we do all of the right things, but it's a great party. It's a religion where we get to fill, be filled with your grace. We pray that we would, we would focus less on our obedience, less on our doing the right thing, less on making sure that we walk the right way, and more on your rich grace. Fill us up, Jesus, today with that grace. Let us drink deeply from your wine and taste and see that you really are good. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.